0: Scooby-doo, looking for you. Scooby-Scooby-doo, where are you? All the stars are here, waiting
1: for you. Couldn't have a show without ya. Well, welcome to Michael and us. I'm Will Sloan here, as always, with... Luke Savage, welcome back, everyone. Uh, still getting used to our new mic setup here. Uh, Will got me a big, fancy wind guard. Uh, his microphone uh, remains too primitive to actually accommodate one. But I feel like a podcasting king over here. No more popping peas from the
0: Luke Savage
1: side of the equation.
0: Over the years, you do a podcast with someone and you learn a lot about them. You know, a podcast is like a friendship on steroids. <laughs> Friendships are hard enough as it is. And then you add, you know, microphones and a business and an audience to the equation. You you turn yourself into persona and you don't know what's real, what's not real anymore. You know, these are just... Just a few of the landmines that come in.
1: Yeah, long live the new flesh.
0: But every now and then I actually do learn a new thing about Luke. And you told me that uh, the most scared you were as a child was by a a Scooby-Doo movie. I,
1: I don't know if it was quite the most scared I was as a child. There was a time the tornado hit of, the house and yeah. my house burned down. Yeah, there, there were other times where I was more scared. I can tell you... The most scared I was by a movie, though, was, yeah, a Scooby-Doo movie, I think circa about age eight. And unless people get the wrong idea, I'm not talking about whatever that live action, like, Scooby-Doo movie was, which I don't think I ever saw. I'm talking about what was almost certainly a straight-to-video, feature-length Scooby-Doo cartoon in which, you know, Freddy, Scooby, Shaggy, and the gang got in the mystery machine and went off on a little adventure, except this time it was, you know... Instead of being, what, how long are Scooby Doo episodes? Like twelve minutes or something, twenty minutes, whatever they I are. I think they were like half an hour, yeah, probably. Whatever. But uh, so this was like I don't know, this was ninety minutes or something. And uh, this one, you know, every episode of Scooby Doo, I like. This is a digression, but I don't know how I was so entertained by Scooby Doo as a kid. I loved it. I mean, the fact that every episode of Scooby-Doo is, like, exactly the same thing, and it's like, oh, yeah, the, the friendly groundskeeper they meet right at the beginning, like, that's who the ghost is, or that's who the, you know, the monster... And, and then would have they... gotten away with it if it weren't for those meddling kids, right? That's right. That's right. So always in the third act of every single one of those, they, like, pull off the mask of, you know, the gremlin or whatever, and it's like, oh, why, it's Mr. Withers from the Haunted Amusement Park. But the thing about this made-for-TV movie or whatever it was... which which, by the way, if, if anyone actually knows what this movie was, do send a message on the Patreon or something. DM me on Twitter. I'd be curious to look it up. But the twist in this movie is that folks the monsters are real so at the big unmasking moment like there's a scene where one of them goes to pull off like i don't know the the mask that a zombie is wearing or something and then it won't come off and then you know freddy is saying oh well it must be i don't know animatronics or something but like this time the monsters are actually real and you know this is what liberals are trying to do they're trying to destroy the monomyth <laughs> yeah that's right yeah this is what the Frankfurt School is doing. To... <laughs> <laughs> Folks, this is your Scooby-Doo on Walter Benjamin. But no, uh, this scared me so much. I could not sleep. And I remember my mom, you know, to her credit at the time, she was not having any of this. She was like winding me up and stuff like that. She did not take it seriously, which was probably the right response rather than indulging uh, this ridiculous. I-, I mean, I think it's fair to say a reaction. To it's ridiculous to have it age eight.
0: Well, while we're on the subject of Scooby-Doo, by the way, I just want to briefly put on the record. Are you aware of a show from the 1970s? He's, it ran two seasons, and it was called the New Scooby-Doo Movies. The episodes were an hour long, and I know it because there was one uh, that I used to watch as a kid, where the guest star every episode had a guest star. And one,
1: oh, I think I did see this because was it basically just like regular Scooby-Doo? It was like
0: regular Scooby-Doo. But it had a different theme song. The theme song was like Scooby Scooby-Doo, oh yeah, Scooby Scooby-Doo. And every episode had a celebrity guest star. And the one that I saw as a kid was Batman and Robin, were the celebrity guest stars. Yes. Um, I think I saw that too, but other episodes, the guest stars included Don Knotts as Homer Pipsqueak. Sorry, who's Don Knotts? Uh, he was on the Andy Griffith show. Okay. Uh, he not was, all
1: our listeners will be aware of that. No, no. It's You're a, aware it, we have some listeners under 50.
0: It's a fair point. Um, if you, if you were uh, my dad or anybody of his generation, you would know who Don Knotts was. So he was in one episode as uh, Homer Pipsqueak, but I'm looking at the list here and apparently Phyllis Diller was in an episode as herself. <laughs> Uh, Sonny and Cher were in an episode as themselves. Episode 8, The Secret of Shark Island. Mystery Inc. stays at an offshore hotel with Sonny and Cher, where the hotel manager warns them of shark men who rise from the waves. Yeah, special guest Sonny and Cher as themselves. Uh, Tim Conway, the Harlem Globetrotters.
1: Uh, now- <laughs> Sorry, the Harlem Globetrotters, like are they established as characters? Like, do they exist as individuals apart from being part of, like, the bigger Harlem Globetrotters whole?
0: Well, it's a good question because... <laughs> so the episode was episode 12, The Ghostly Create from the Deep. Uh, in Florida, Mystery Inc. and the Harlem Globetrotters encounter a mystery ship crewed by ghost pirates in a swamp. The, the voices included Scatman Crothers... Right. Uh, ...as one of the Globetrotters, I guess, which I don't <laughs> think he was in real life. <laughs> so there are a lot of episodes where, like, yeah, Tim Connors... Conway and Jerry Reed and people like that voice themselves. But then also there's an episode with Laurel and Hardy and two episodes with the Three Stooges, all of whom were long dead by this point. So they got other, I think, but other people owned the copyrights of them. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so special guest voice, Don Butler as Larry and Curly and Pat Harrington as Mo.
1: Um, <laughs> uh, sh- sh- should be interesting. Anyway, back to the main subject. There were things that scared you as kids as a kid, right? I'm not the only one. No,
0: no. And actually, I want to ask you this. I had experiences with movies as a kid where the being scared was actually part of the process. It was yes. part of the ritual. So like when I was very, very young. And
1: maybe even being so scared, you get up at a certain moment and you, like, you don't watch that part of the movie. A
0: hundred percent. Like how the Rocky Horror Picture Show has the rituals built into it. I was like that with, when I was very, very young, The Wizard of Oz, when the flying monkeys tear apart
1: the scarecrow.
0: Oh, yeah. And I, I uh, like and he says, either. they
1: threw me over here, and they threw me over there. That was terrifying. I, I didn't like it when the witch melts, honestly, even though yeah. that's like the bad guy being vanquished. There was something so disturbing about the idea of like a person melting to me. There is actually
0: a moment in that movie that I still think is horrifying. It's at <laughs> the end, right before the witch is melted, when she says, have my little fire, scarecrow. Oh, and she God. lights the scarecrow on fire, and there's two seconds where he is helplessly on fire and he's like screaming i still think that's horrifying <laughs> uh, you've spent two hours loving this like lovable doofus scarecrow well, and that, now that explains
1: in- that explains why you got up and left the theater when we were, we were watching it recently <laughs> <laughs> You
0: said you didn't um, uh, sort of take movies seriously, or it took it took you a long time to understand movies as like an art form. And I want to know, what was it? What was the one uh, that made you think of movies in the same category as like literature or painting or the other arts, you know?
1: <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I would love to have like an origin story on this where I could say, oh, I, I saw such and such a thing. And it, it made me understand the magic of the movies. The truth is, I was just very risk averse as a kid. It only happened recently when you saw the movie Babylon, and there was that... <laughs> (laughs) that
0: that montage at the end about the magic of the movies and you said you know what maybe this isn't just like a picture play for for the working classes uh maybe maybe mr griffith has invented an art form here you know
1: yeah No, it was when i saw a little movie called v for vendetta in the year of our lord 2023 and it's like it's great because it's a great movie but also you know there's there's a message too i didn't know you could do that with a movie no but i don't know you know i just liked the familiar as a kid so i think i started watching real movies probably several years later than you did like there were all kinds of movies like even my favorite movies there were things that i would skip like in star wars a new hope when obi-wan kenobi rescues luke skywalker from the sand people luke figures out that the empires traced uh, what r2d2 and c-3po back to like the homestead where his uncle and aunt live and he goes back there in the speeder and then there's that horrifying shot of just like the homestead and like their skeletons like burning. I saw that I think the first time I watched that movie and then I think I did not watched that sequence again until like several years ago as an adult when i revisited star wars a new hope but no so at some point when i was a teenager i don't know i grew a little more adventurous and for whatever reason yeah like i i started understanding that oh you can put something on without knowing what's in it and then often you can have a great time and the mystery is part of the adventure
0: i'm thinking of (laughs) the things that were coming out when we were teenagers like dodgeball a true underdog story or mr and mrs smith or the breakup (laughs) with Jennifer Aniston and Vince Vaughn, (laughs) Nacho Libre. You know, Napoleon Dynamite. Yeah, there, were, there were so many great art films of that era. You're right. It was like being in Paris after the Second World War and like the floodgates were opened so, and Mr. like <laughs> me and my friends Francois and Jean-Luc were in this front row just seeing the complete works of Samuel Fuller just one after another.
1: Incidentally, I love when we begin episodes this way, especially the free episodes, because I love the idea that people find this on the Jacobin radio feed and then they listen and it's like, all right, yeah, the, the boys are doing 10 minutes on Scooby-Doo before they get into the movie movie. Incidentally, have you ever looked at like, you know how on the podcast app, there is the ratings at the bottom? Uh, well, because all of the different podcasts on the Jacobin radio feed appear there, if you look at it, it kind of looks like people are reviewing our podcast when probably they're just listening to the dig or whatever. But it's it's really funny when the episode is like, yeah, I was talking about Scooby-Doo and then it's like a five-star rating and the comment is like a vital tool for left organizing. <laughs> I,
0: I spot the lie. I don't know. how <laughs> about fire scarecrow crow! Oh, no. ah. 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 Well, we have a lot more to talk about on this episode, but I think we might as well get the plugs out of the way right now, don't you think? Patreon.com slash Michael and us. You know what you love it, $5 a month. Just this past week, we did a movie on the Patreon that has been a long, long, long time coming. One of the vital artistic documents of the Bush era that uh, was a failure at the time and keeps getting new fans every year. Not Luke Savage, I (laughs) I hasten to add. And, um... Maybe not me either. Although I'm, I'm. It's been ringing in my ears since we watched it again. Uh, Southland Tales. My God, we watched Southland Tales finally.
1: One of our listeners uh, commented that uh, you know they enjoyed a Siskel and Ebert style episode, and I hadn't been thinking about that while we were doing it. But I do think it was an interesting instance of us, at least, having a mild disagreement about a movie. You know, seeing something and having it. I don't know. Really, I mean, it 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 clearly connected with you on some level that it didn't. I just couldn't connect with it at all, and I think. That's that led to an interesting discussion. So if you've been on the fence about subscribing at patreon.com slash Michael and us, this would be a good moment to do it. As
0: well as uh, some recent episodes include, we talked about a recent and interesting film about the Partygate scandal in Britain, the scandal that brought down the Boris Johnson government.
1: Yes, that's the new film uh, from Channel 4, which honestly was a cut above in terms of uh, the quality of how those things generally are.
0: Alexandra Pelosi's latest film, (laughs) The Insurrectionist Next Door, her second (laughs) January, Sixth film. In less than 12 months. As well as Luke has a couple of interviews that are worth listening to. You spoke to the McKinsey whistleblower Garrison Lovely, uh, learning about, you know, how to fix the price of bread, <laughs> uh, other matters like that. There's also a very interesting episode where you interview the great political commentator Edinger Mentum about the career, the legacy of Benjamin Netanyahu.
1: Yes, lots of great stuff at patreon.com slash Us. I just want to say in bookstore news, because I don't think I remember to do this last week. A big thank you to everyone who came out to the Vancouver Central Library the week before last. It was really nice, uh, as it's been in Toronto and Ottawa as well, to see so many Michael and us listeners at these events. Incidentally, if you are in Windsor, Ontario, or uh, perhaps across the water in Detroit and want to come out, I will be at the Biblioasis bookstore Sunday, November 19th from 5 to 6 p.m. I will be the only uh, co-author of Seeking Social Democracy in physical attendance, though my colleagues will be joining virtually. Again, that's the Biblioasis bookstore in Windsor, Ontario, November the 19th, 5 to 6 p.m. You will have more uh, book tour news when I have it. Well, in general on this show, uh, we've tried to avoid too much, you know, discussing things that happen on Twitter. Generally speaking, a good rule of thumb if you're in the content minds these days. Uh, But there was a thread, a particularly good thread from Corey Robin recently that I thought was worth bringing up. It's quite short, so I'm actually just going to read it and perhaps we can talk about it a little bit. Corey writes, uh, this was three days ago, uh, every student of democracy knows that democracy is more than the state or the vote. It's a deep practice of everyday life in which ordinary people argue over and contest and shape the largest and seemingly most remote forces that affect them. Far from democracy dying, we've been seeing since Occupy a birth and maturation of democracy. It's not just the protests and increased voting rates. It's ordinary people, often young people, breaking with the patterns of deference to experts and elites that set in during the 1980s. It's amazing that people now have not just opinions but developed ideas about the fed banking inflation prison policy policing labor unions Palestine Ukraine gender weekends the weather housing how we get to work and that they don't just express them in polls and surveys but in arguments with each other online and in person on the streets on campuses and mosques and churches and synagogues I've been watching this develop for over a decade and it's a world that is so completely different from the world I grew up in went to college in and pursued my PhD and it's a truly politicized society where living in, and however scary that can be, and it can be very scary, it's much more open and genuinely democratic than the lockdown NGO democracy of missiles and markets that we were living in in the 1980s, 90s, and odds. And just to add one more point to this, this is why the president of Harvard, Biden, Trump, Blinken, Clinton, Obama, Haley, Billy Ackerman, and all the rest are so out of touch, they have no sense of this social simmer. Now, Corey Robin goes without saying, One of the best uh, political commentators, public intellectuals we have going. Someone whose work's been very important to me. But uh, the reason I find that intervention particularly interesting, I think, or the reason why I think it resonated with me so much is because it's so damned optimistic. And I feel like I do say a version of this, uh, not as eloquently as Corey, but I feel like I do find myself saying a version of this quite a lot. Because invited to talk politics on podcasts and the like, and, you know, conversation at bars and such often turning to politics as well. I feel like there is kind of a stock attitude you hear. And I'm not even saying this to criticize it because I understand why people feel this way. I think, you know, various acquaintances and such, you know, they know me as somebody who's on the left and they often ask me a version of like, how do you even have the energy to be as like connected to this stuff and engage with it uh, as you are? Like, how is this your job uh, without it driving you completely crazy? And honestly, my reply to that is generally some version of, well, yeah, things are bad, but actually, uh, for all the reasons Corey Robin has just said, I cannot tell you how much better and more dynamic things are. Political discourse, even speaking in generally, not just on the left, how much of an improvement there has been since I was a teenager, since I was in my early 20s. Uh, I loved Corey Robin's turn of phrase about the uh, lockdown NGO democracy of missiles and markets. I mean, that is very much what I grew up in. This you know pervasive feeling of politics has been relegated to the you know it's it's just a, it's a series of technical questions it's problems and solutions there's no horizons in the i mean forget like achieving it there's no horizon that can be imagined outside of yeah like 1990s ngo liberalism like the democratic party of the bill clinton era whatever you want and the fact is people actually are just much more engaged today and i know that that's not a very comforting thought when you consider how bad everything is and. So so many areas. But another point I'd make here, and again, this is something, you know, I think there's been a big change since I was growing up, since I was first becoming politicized on the left. Popular opinion and public opinion in many areas, I think, really has shifted to the left, or maybe that's too generous, but it has grown less conservative. There really was a lot more just sort of reflexive deference to political elites and experts and, and the like than there is today so much of the upheaval political turmoil political contestation we've seen over the past decade or so really has been about a collapse of a crisis of deference towards elites and i mean that's manifested itself in some ways that are scary like donald trump being the most obvious example of that but it's also had a lot of constructive expressions as well in left electoral movements and in other things too In general terms, I really do think the most striking feature of our current political moment, the feature that is most important to understanding it, and which explains a lot of the uh, the anger and frustration and cynicism as well, is the fact that there is a huge chasm between elite opinion on the one hand and popular opinion on the other. Uh, we can see this right now vis-a-vis Palestine, but we see it everywhere. I mean, poll people across the political spectrum on a question like, should rich people, should billionaires pay more taxes? You know, should we have more universal programs and services that are free at the point of use? Do we have too much inequality in our society? And should we do something about it, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. I mean, a really good example of it that's uh, particularly topical, I guess, given the events of the past 18 months or so is the way that uh, so many countries have directed central banks to basically drive up unemployment on purpose uh, in response to inflation. Hard to think of a clear cut example of elite opinion and institutions operating basically, you know, independently of any kind of democratic constituency, right? Because there's no uh, majority democratic constituency for like, hell, yeah, I'd like to be out of work. please raise interest rates so that I no longer have a job. That way, I'll have less money in my pocket to spend, and prices will go down. Well, first of all, I really like that Cory Robin thread,
0: and my feelings about this are kind of all over the place these days, because you know, it's hard not to feel this sense of despair, and you know, even moments of hopelessness when, you know, Justin Trudeau, Joe Biden, Bob Ray at the UN.
1: Yeah, all your your faves are betraying you. These totems of, of liberal
0: democracy and, you know, liberal Politics are etc etc etc, and not to talk too much about like bozos on Twitter again. But in the last few weeks, we've seen like the zombie version of what was going on, you know, in the four years after 2016. Of like, well, you know, what are you gonna do? Like, you've you've got to vote for Biden. Things will be so much worse if it was Trump. This zombified left punching from certain quarters, even in a moment when the liberal president is sanctioning ethnic cleansing in the Middle East. And then you see this like back and forth that erupts about, you know, people saying, well, I'm not, vo- I'm not voting in the next election. You know, I'm, I'll never vote Democrat again. And you have all these, like, you know, Biden-pills
1: people, these vote blue no matter who people who are like, you should be damn excited to vote for Joe Biden, okay? Most progressive president of our lifetime. And they accuse the people saying that of nihilism. Which is not what it is. No, it's the opposite of nihilism. People having that reaction, that reaction is one of deep moral revulsion. And to have moral revulsion, I mean, you have to have morality to begin with. Nihilism is the absence of morality because they're the ones who are saying it was ever thus. What do you want? You expect things to be better? You expect a liberal president not to behave this way? Well, on the weekend, I was out
0: at this weekend's protest in solidarity with Palestine, the third weekend in a row. Each weekend here in Toronto, it gets a little bit bigger. It started rather big indeed. Every comparable city all over the world, and many much smaller, have these same
1: protests every weekend. Yeah, huge protest in London, especially this weekend. I think organized said uh, a million people, something like that. And, you know, you have mixed emotions
0: when you're at these because you feel so much the banging your head against the wall of reality of certain decisions ultimately rest with some very morally bankrupt people in positions of power. And God almighty, we've got a million people out in the street like three weeks in a row. When is this going to make any difference? So, so there's that feeling. But yeah, you can't fall into despair because, you know, in this highly politicized society enabled by the proliferation of social media, it's so much easier to organize a protest like this. In the context of the current situation in the Middle East, we've seen so much more footage in citizen journalism and discourse that is not the official story being pushed by politicians and the media. So much more than was ever possible before. And it's funny, you know, the, the kind of dinosaurs of the old world, the people from that. Well, how is it that Corey Robin
1: described at the... Uh, I think it was the the lockdown NGO democracy of markets and missiles, a great turn of phrase.
0: Yeah, now you see those people saying, oh, God, like, how are we not reaching the young people? How is uh, Israel losing the PR battle, which I think was, was Donald Trump's turn of phrase. <laughs> uh, surely it's because TikTok is brainwashing the youth with, well, with that misinformation. Was, that
1: was what... But, I mean, they had a whole back and forth about that at last week's Republican debate where they were talking about TikTok like, yeah, it's a mind virus that's, yeah, making it's making young people be pro-China or whatever. This is maybe
0: a digression, but when you're living in interesting times and you're seeing so much moral rot everywhere, a sentiment that you often hear expressed and maybe you express it yourself is, you know, who's going to be on the right side of history? Who's going to be on the wrong side of history? You know, the people waging this will one day understand they're on the wrong side of history. And, you know, embedded in that is this framing still, or maybe a hope that history is still this long arc that bends towards progress. Yeah,
1: there's some underlying trajectory that's coherent and where things at least gradually improve.
0: In reality, history is much more like that bowl of spaghetti in The Flash that Michael <laughs> Keaton...
1: I've said it often. <laughs> yeah, you know, and, and say what really about that
0: movie? What a powerful metaphor. Um, what a pliable metaphor. You know, take the Iraq War, for example, which which is the one that everyone uses in comparison to this current conflict. There's a broad consensus that it was a failure, but there's still no consensus,
1: at least among government and media elites, why it was a failure, how it was a failure. Well, even the whole framing of it as a failure is a pretty conservative one, right? Not a failure, it was a crime.
0: George W. Bush, you see him, he carries around him, too, a certain air of, um, for want of a better term, failure. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, Every time I see him, he's on stage holding a microphone somewhere. Yeah,
1: joking it up, yucking it up. You know, David Frum, he's
0: out there. All those hawks from 2003 are still where they are. But you have this enormous protest movement that's happening right now. You see people at these protests from all walks of life. At the one I was at yesterday, there was a very moving speech by a survivor of the Holocaust. And you see all these masses of people who very visibly, very vocally have learned the lessons of the past. Uh, there's a widespread perception, you'll see it all the time, that you know populations of people are easily manipulated by fear and hate. But that's not actually true. Masses of population are just like individual people, the median individual person. They have a conscience. They do learn from history. They can be manipulated often on moral grounds. You see that in the Iraq war. A lot of it was sold as we're going to spread our way of life.
1: First, it was sold as as like a security thing. And then when that pretext fell apart, then it was sold as like, oh, we're just exporting democracy abroad. It's liberation. a A
0: brutal leader who oppresses his own people, you know? It was that kind of argument. So I would just say that over the last months, like I've honestly never felt more alienated and disgusted by our institutions, but I feel much more confidence in people than I did a month ago.
1: Yeah, I guess just to close this conversation out before we turn to our movie, you were talking about 2003, obviously 2003, 2001, you know, is a is a period that I suppose in some ways is is rarely uh, far from my mind, you know, in thinking about politics today, because that was such a formative moment in so many ways. But since we began by reading that thread of Corey Robbins, I can't remember if I brought this up before, and I may be mangling the details, but I believe Corey Robbins once interviewed, I think in the late 90s, none other than William F. Buckley. And I remember him saying that, you know, Buckley complained about politics in the 1990s because he felt with the Cold War over, you know, there was nothing to kind of marshal the forces of, you know, conservatism around. For Buckley, you know, conservatism needs, you know, an adversary. It needs a it needs a threat. Gosh, I wish he'd lived to see wokeness. But the thing is, Buckley got his wish in 2001. I mean, when I was growing up, that's what the return of the political was, right? It was the war on terror. It was an entirely right-wing phenomenon, which of course many liberals were signed up for as well. And you know, in saying this, I don't want to trivialize the scale of the protests and and uh, you know the dissent that happened at that time. But I think what we're seeing now is of a very different nature. I think it's proven to be a lot more effective. And I'm not just talking about the past month or several months. I'm talking about the past five to 10 years. You know, as Robin says, the return of the political democracy can be a very scary thing, but it can also be a very powerful and, and hopeful and constructive thing. And I think we've experienced uh, both of those realities over the past decade. From director
0: Alfonso Quadro, why are women infertile? Why do you think we can't make babies anymore? What if your generation was the last one on earth?
1: I need your help, not
0: for me, girl. What if the most precious resource in the world show him was your only hope? She's pregnant. They want your baby. We have to leave.
1: Get down!
0: We're almost there. Keith. We're almost there. Children of Men, rated R, now in select theaters. Well, our movie on this episode is a winner of our super delegate poll over at Patreon. We have a new super delegate here. Uh, we were we, we frankly have too many super delegates now, so we've
1: uh... we we didn't think the concept through because the idea that very many people, a critical mass of people, would pay ten dollars a month. For the, you know, the privilege of being able to nominate movies and then vote on them so that we have to watch one. We didn't think through what would happen, given the limits of, you know, the size of Patreon's polls and things like that, uh, when there was more than 100 people, which there now are, thanks to all who signed up. We hope more of you do.
0: Back when it was like 10, it was much, <laughs> much easier to handle. But, you know, now people can nominate. And based on how many people press the little heart button on their nomination, it's a really streamlined process, actually. Uh, but also fun stuff in the super delegate category. Luke and I are gonna do an extra mailbag episode every month, hashing around your comments, just having a little bit of a chat directly with you, the fans.
1: And that'll be for super delegates only. So as a general rule on this podcast, we're not gonna have any tiers for you know the mainline content. If you join at the five dollar a month Al Gore tier, we're not gonna say, oh well, you have to pay ten dollars a month to get an extra episode or something. We're not gonna do that. Not fair. At the same time, this is not a democracy. (laughs) Well, it's called the superdelegateer for a reason.
0: We have two superdelegate winners this month and the first one definitely falls into that category of long time coming. It's the 2006 film Children of Men. Not quite sure where to start with this one. Maybe I'll just say off the top that it's impossible for me to watch this movie and uh, not think of the late great theorist Mark Fisher. His great book Capitalist Realism begins with some commentary on Children of Men and you know, watching it now, I haven't seen this movie in a really long time and is it the times I'm living in that's making me think this way about this movie or am I just subconsciously or even consciously plagiarizing what Mark Fisher already wrote. But there was one scene in particular that leapt out to me on this viewing, which been a while since I'd read the Fisher book. Uh, I realized that he opens the book with this scene. Yeah, It's when the Clive Owen character goes to this wealthy apartment, and it's loaded with many of the great pieces of art and culture. Right. Of,
1: it's, it's in the Battersea Power Station. Yeah,
0: Michelangelo's David, Picasso's Guernica, um, what are some of the other things?
1: Well, I mean, the Battersea Power Station itself is kind of a cultural artifact as well, right? Because it famously... Famously is on the cover of 1977's Animals, the album by Pink Floyd, with the inflatable pig floating over it. And uh, that's there as well. As regular listeners to the show will know, uh, I did a feature story for the Toronto Star this summer about Pink Floyd. And as uh, you know, part of the background for that, I was given a private tour of uh, the touring Pink Floyd exhibit, Their Mortal Remains, by none other than Aubrey Powell, Pink Floyd's creative director, uh, who designed the cover for Animals. And it was amazing to talk to him about it, uh, you know, we were talking about the 2018 reshoot he did, which because they did a remix of it, and uh, you know, it's a slightly different angle, and just uh, 2018's not that long ago, but apparently, like, it's impossible to take a proper long shot of the Battersea power station now, because there's been too much gentrification, including of the power station itself, which we'll come back to in a minute. But, I was recording all this, and again, as regular listeners of the show will know, my Bluetooth headphones were on, so I did not capture any of my hours spent uh, with the great opera. Powell. But if I had, uh, we would have had some great audio of me telling him about Children of Men, which he had actually somehow not heard of. In the scene where Clive Owen's at the Battersea Power Station and he's looking
0: at these totems of pre-21st century art and culture, at one point he says, where's the effect of what's the point of keeping all this stuff if, you know, in 100 years there's going to be no one to appreciate it? Uh, I was reminded of a scene in a little movie called *Equilibrium*. Probably, you know, <laughs> good fodder for the podcast at some point. What's *Equilibrium* again? *Equilibrium* is a Orwellian sci-fi <laughs> gun kata. <laughs> action movie gun kata is martial arts that have guns in it um you know bruce lee never thought of that that was something that vexed a lot of the previous martial artists it's 1984 basically with action and there's a scene where christian bale as the winston smith type uncovers this room full of the great art and culture and he's listening to Beethoven and a single tear rolls down his cheek. He's never he's never felt art. He's never felt music before and the power of it. And that movie would suggest that there's an inherent beauty in this work. Whereas when you see all of these things in that scene in Children of Men, Michelangelo's David, Guernica, it's all ripped of its context and it becomes meaningless.
1: That's right. I mean, Fisher uses that scene to illustrate the way that the uh, commodification process inherent in capitalism erodes the aura of an artistic object, and yeah, just turns it into a commodity. It's not even clear, I mean, you know, he, as he points out in that essay, it's not even clear, like, what this facility is. You know, when Clive Owen is pulling up to it, it seems to be both a kind of private facility and something that's run by the government. This guy just has all of these absolutely priceless objects. It's not really even clear how much he values them. By the way, we'd be remiss if we didn't recount the rest of that exchange that uh, Clive Owen's Theo has with his host, because as you said, he asks him, you know hundred years from now, there won't be anyone around to look at this. What keeps you going? His interlocutor replies in, you know, what might be the most important line in the film? Certainly one of them. He says, you know what, Theo? I just don't think about it. Which, in discussing the movie, hopefully it will become clear uh, why that's such an important line. In writing
0: about that scene, Mark Fisher writes, Tradition counts for nothing when it is no longer contested and modified. A culture that is merely preserved is no culture at all. The fate of Picasso's Guernica in the film, once a howl of anguish and outrage against fascist atrocities, now a wall hanging, is exemplary. Like its Battersea hanging space in the film, the painting is accorded iconic status only when it is deprived of any possible function or context no cultural object can retain its power when there are no longer new eyes to see it now, central to a lot of Mark Fisher's writing and thought is the idea of the end of history, not in the way that Tony Blair and Bill Clinton meant it, but the end of history as a moment where, uh, you know, what's that famous phrase? It's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. The idea that this is now all there can be, and it's impossible to imagine a future. It's just an endless
1: repermutation, permutation rehash of what's come before, but getting worse and worse and worse. That's right, and, and Fisher also has that wonderful relate concept of hauntology, uh, which you know, ex- expressed in the name of that great essay of his Lost Futures. Right, where it's not just that there's a a pervasive sense of futurelessness, it's that we're actually haunted by the memory of it having once been possible to imagine a future and to imagine alternatives to the present. I do just want to get in a a detail that, regrettably, Mark Fisher is no longer alive to know, but the opening of capitalist realism is perhaps even more prophetic than he imagined, because as I discovered while researching an essay that's in my book, actually, uh, in 2018, the Battersea Power Station was actually... Bought by a Malaysian based sovereign wealth fund. And it's soon going to be, it probably is by now, a home to a mixture of luxury lofts, restaurants, retail outlets, and a quote. Chimney lift tourist attraction, also a 5,000 square foot campus. That's what they're calling it anyway, owned by Apple. So the building itself, you know, which was once, I mean, I think at one point in in the 1930s, it might have supplied as much of a quarter of uh, the electricity in London. It was a very significant coal-fired electric plant. And the building itself is now a heritage object. So the very setting in which this amazing scene in Children of Men occurs, the setting itself has been acted on by the same process, not just in the movie, but in the real world as well. So Fisher, prophetic as always, even in ways he didn't predict himself. you kill me.
0: A hundred years from now, there won't be one sad fuck to look at any of this. What keeps you going? You know what it is, Theo? I just don't think about it. There's a scene very early on in Children of Men, I think it's the opening scene, where Clive Owen's character is walking through the streets of London, and for many years it's been established that no child has been born. You know, society is facing imminent extinction within the next century, and, you know, he's walking through the streets, and surprisingly, British society looks, I want to say, 30% worse than it does now, maybe 40% worse, but still recognizable. And this is another one of those moments where I was thinking, like, am I remembering what Mark? Wrote about, or does it just feel like being in a world that's five to ten percent worse all around than it was when I first saw this movie in
1: 2006? It's remarkable when Theo is is either driving away from or being driven to the Battersea Power Station, and he drives along the road that I mean, I'm embarrassed as someone who's visited London many times that I can't remember the name. But the road that leads up to Buckingham Palace, and it's so perfect what you see because basically what you see is exactly what you see if you go on that road today. In fact, I walked down. It when I was last in London in 2019. In the event of a global collapse in which, I don't know, things in Britain were, you know, marginally more stable than they were elsewhere, it is absolutely the case that all of this anachronistic imperial splendor would be immaculately maintained.
0: We see it this week when King Charles is on the throne in his ridiculous King Charles <laughs> cosplay, you know, with the uh, very ethically sourced diamonds all over his <laughs> crown. Uh, you know, you see the dystopian London and Children of Men looking so similar to the cities that we live in and it reminds me of this passage again from the first chapter of mark fisher's capitalist realism children of men connects with the suspicion that the end has already come the thought that it could well be the case that the future harbors only reiteration and repermutation could it be that there are no breaks no shocks of the new to come such anxieties tend to result in a bipolar oscillation the weak messianic hope that there must be something new on the way lapses into the morose conviction that nothing new can ever happen. The focus shifts from the next big thing to the last big thing. How long ago did it happen, and just how big was it?
1: So I think it would be fair to say that the two of us thoroughly enjoyed this movie. I'd only seen it once. I think you were spitballing that you'd maybe seen it twice, once in 2006 in the theaters, and perhaps once since then? I think so. So Children of Men is one of those films that is certainly brimming with provocative political content, but at the end of the day, the delivery system for all of that is just a really good thriller. And I think you said while well, we are watching, I mean, this is a film that doesn't put the cart before the horse. You know, it is a, a virtuosic piece of filmmaking by Alfonso Cuaron. And a lot of the meaning of it is implicit rather than stated. Yeah, that's definitely one of the Michael and us 10 commandments for good cinema. Well, I could probably cite a million examples of
0: didactic art that I like too, but uh, you know, what can I say? I have no principles. <laughs>
1: So as Will said, uh, the film opens by establishing that its events take place in the not too distant future. The first thing we see in the film is a news report about the death of someone named Diego Ricardo, uh, who's died at the age of 18 and was a celebrity because he has the distinction of being the youngest person in the world. Uh, because for an unknown reason, there have been no babies born for 18 years. And actually, I found a, a comment from Karan on this, which I which I quite liked. Uh, you know, He was asked in some interview about why the central plot detail of the film goes completely unexplained and he answered there's a kind of cinema I detest which is cinema that is all about exposition and explanation it's become now what I call a medium for lazy readers cinema is a hostage of narrative and I'm very good at narrative as a hostage of cinema I'd agree with that assessment, and I think the film is much stronger for uh, leaving this central thing in its plot a mystery. But there's this crisis of infertility. Major cities all around the world are burning and in crisis. We see a government propaganda ad that ends by saying, well, and in the midst of it, Britain's soldiers on. It is possible, I suppose, that things are not as bad, you know, they're not quite as bad in Britain as they are in the rest of the world, or maybe that's just complete nonsense, maybe every country is telling its citizens some version of this. Well, I feel like when the dystopia
0: happens, as maybe from some perspectives, it's already here, it doesn't announce itself as such a lot of the great atrocities in history, for example, you know, it's not like they were announced as world historic atrocities the second they happened or were uncovered. It was felt over generations. This is uh, something that I liked about Southland Tales last week, a movie that, (laughs) as I say, has been ringing in my ears ever since I watched it again. What it understands is that even when the dystopia is here, the rest of the world is still gonna, like, keep moving. And in fact, The disparity between the dystopia and the normalcy, or maybe not the disparity, the the tension between the dystopia
1: and the normalcy will grow increasingly absurd. This film captures that so well, and it captures it so particularly well in the British context. Like, this is exactly what it would be like, because in the midst of all of this, when, you know, there are literal, like, government stormtroopers just, you know, clearing out entire apartment complexes where they've decided that the people are, uh, you know, illegals or or fuji as they're called, you know, there's in this, you know, sci-fi dystopia, Britain has become very cruel to people uh, seeking asylum, which fortunately uh, doesn't happen in the real world. But, you know, as all this is going on and as there's, you know, rampant poverty, increasing political upheaval, you know, a, a faction or several factions of dissidents basically in, a, in the midst of an armed insurrection against the state. Clive Owens just like walking past a newsstand and it's still just like the sun and the evening standard with all this tabloidy bullshit. There's a nice little Easter egg I noticed where there's a newspaper somewhere with the headline Charles should be thrown out. I didn't zoom in to see if there was an accompanying news article, but I like the Char- Charles is on the throne, and in the dystopian world, he sucks just as much as he does in real life. But so anyway, there's this climate of scaremongering about uh, illegal aliens. There's also a public snitching campaign. You know, there's, we see all these government ads on buses and things like that that are saying, you know, he's my neighbor, he's my waiter. Uh, well, he's also an illegal, and apparently it's been criminalized not to report somebody if you find out they're an illegal. There seem to be uh, severe restrictions on civil liberties, even for people who are officially considered, you know, upstanding citizens. The country is divided into different zones. You need an ID card to pass through. I believe ID cards, incidentally, were something that New Labour toyed with at one point. One of the uh, oft-forgotten things about New Labour, which I won't go into here because everyone rightly focuses on Iraq, was how horrible their record on civil liberties was as well, like teasing around the idea of citizen ID cards and things like that. But so I mean, you know, like Southland Tales. I wish you could think of a better movie there. You keep uh, feeling the need to disrespect (laughs) Southland Tales. I don't know.
0: You're gonna keep. You're gonna be thinking about that movie a year from now. What
1: can I? I haven't thought about it till you brought it up today. Actually, I'm gonna
0: keep banging the drum, and eventually, (laughs) it's gonna work its way into your brain, and you'll be thinking about, you know, John Lovitz and old Kevin Smith and Justin Timberlake and all the gang.
1: Another movie uh, you could say the same thing about is uh, V for Vendetta, which you know, which honestly, I probably like a little less than Southland Tales. <laughs> I think if we watched it again, we might be more charitable to it than when we did our episode about no, it back probably. in 2017 yeah. or whatever. But regardless, one thing that I, I'm i sure I said at the time that I think that movie does do pretty well is the way it depicts a civil authoritarian, you know, repressive version of British society is very believable. You know, it does a very good job of, you know, depicting the kind of normalcy that's coexisting with all of this. And like Children of Men is very much a response to the repressive climate uh, after 9-11, and what all of the endless moral panics about, you know, there are going to be suicide bombers in Brooklyn and all that stuff. You know, the film is imagining just a kind of heightened version of, you know, that Britain has enacted some version of, you know, the Patriot Act on steroids, which was possibly enacted as an emergency measure, but now it's been around for so long, it's just the law of the land. And one of the things we learned very early about Clive Owen's character, Theo, is that he used to be an activist of some kind. I mean, again, this is something the film does very well. It sort of hints at the past a fair bit. It tells you what you need to know, but there's no lore created here. All you need to know is that Theo, like uh, virtually everyone else in Britain or like uh, you a know, majority in Britain, has at a certain point just given up. Uh, There's another important line when he visits the Battersea Power Station and he's having a conversation with that guy where he says it's his birthday or it was his birthday the day before and the guy asks him, you know, what did you do for your birthday? And he says, I didn't do anything. Felt the same on my birthday as every other day. Woke up, felt like shit. Went to work, felt like shit. And so through all these things, the film conveys the deep sense of futurelessness and hopelessness that pervades British society. And the arc of Children of Men is very much about Theo's journey out of that.
0: And yet, crucially, like, even in that context, British society continues. It becomes increasingly, you know, fascistic and repressive every year while, you know, as people have less and less hope tell me if this is too heavy handed a connection to make, but you know, we were talking about earlier, you know, we're in an increasingly politicized society now. And a lot of that has been a result of the explosion of social media, but also like frustration with the institutions as they are, as they continue to fail. And you'll notice that a lot of the reactions from the liberal democracies have been censorship and repression, you know,
1: well, we have to control information. We need mods for everything. We
0: need to ban certain phrases and slogans from the public square. Certain flags can't be waved in certain countries
1: or just like trump happened because of algorithms not because Absolutely. of anything political before we go any further in the plot i mean maybe this is heavy-handed of me to point out but i do think it's worth just driving home and just articulating uh, explicitly the connection between you know the futurelessness we're talking about that was expressed so eloquently by the great mark fisher and the film's premise about a society that for completely mysterious reasons has become infertile There's a scene roughly midway through the film in a sort of dilapidated school and you know if you're not watching carefully it just looks like you know there's a lot of dilapidated settings in this film and you might not even fully register what's going on here but i mean the school is not dilapidated because britain's public infrastructure is crumbling or because you know it's been used as a base by one of the various factions you know fighting in this kind of almost civil war it's dilapidated because there are no children anymore so you know the school itself has become an anachronism And when there's no youth, uh, when there's no possibility of youth and nothing is young, there's also no possibility of anything new. So I don't think the idea of futurelessness is something that, you know, Mark Fisher has sort of injected uh, into the film or is just sort of a creative interpretation of it. I think it's something that uh, Caron very obviously intended and probably P.D. James did in the original novel that it's based on as well. So to go a little further in the plot here, Theo is basically uh, abducted one day by a group of people we quickly learn are dissidents, one of whom, played by Julianne Moore, is a former girlfriend of his who kind of knows him from his activist days and has for unknown reasons not been afflicted with the same cynicism he's been afflicted by. They enlist him for his help in a scheme that's soon revealed They want him to help get a woman To a rendezvous point With something called The Human Project Which we see referenced At various points Early in the film We see it referenced By uh, the great Michael Caine character Who's a friend of Theo's Who he goes to meet with Early in the film Who's this survivalist He, de- he does a lot of drugs uh, He takes care of his disabled wife And uh, their lovely dog And it's not clear initially Whether this thing The Human Project Is real Kind of seems like It might have the status Of like a man Goldstein in 1984, who's, you know, the dissident that the party rallies everyone against, and it's not really clear if he actually exists or not. But so taken to this dissident compound, Theo soon learns that the reason this young woman is so special, the woman's name incidentally is Key, who's an asylum seeker, played by Claire Hope Ashidi. She's apparently not a character in the book, uh, but was introduced in the film. She's a, apparently a refugee from somewhere in Africa. And she fairly quickly tells Theo, or reveals to him, I should say, uh, that she's Pregnant. And again, the reasons for this, how this has happened, is left a total mystery. And I think, again, that's something, uh, you know, that's a a strength of the film, not a weakness. We should say, though, actually, on the way to the compound, there's this completely harrowing scene that is a particularly good example of the uh, unique cinematography in this film, which is one of its other strengths. It's a very technically impressive film as well. It has a number of incredibly long takes, uh, including this one in the car that Will actually remembered. It was so striking, he remembered it years later. The cinematography
0: by Emmanuel Lubezki, by the way, the the camera begins in the front seat and it sort of moves to the back and sort of circulates through the car and you know it's a long take scene that has a lot of virtuosic stuff where you know there's a car accident and then a crowd comes in and then there are gunfights somebody gets shot etc etc a lot of action a lot of tonal shifts for the actors to maintain
1: yeah it's when it starts out they're just kind of joking around and then it becomes this harrowing chase scene where someone gets shot fatally but just the camera it's
0: almost invisible you might not notice it if it's not pointed. pointed out to you but you wonder what rail is the camera on is it remote controlled is there a way that the cameraman is somehow fit in there
1: it's remarkable what it achieves because it's not just the width of the shot and the fact that it pans from left to right so much there's also depth to the shot the camera also seems to pull to the front of the car and then back again it seems to turn and so you get so immersed like you feel like you're in the car which makes the impact of the chase scene So much more powerful. I mean, this would have been incredible to see in a theater. I regret that I didn't. Well, part of the, I
0: think, artistic intent of it and the impact of it is the movie picks Clive Owen as its everyman character. And he's, you know, not particularly remarkable.
1: Well, except that he's like tall and handsome and he's Clive (laughs) Owen. But yeah, I hope that goes
0: without saying. (laughs) And he's our point of identification. But the movie isn't quite from his POV exactly. The visual style is almost like we're standing next to him the whole time. And we're seeing things not quite through his eyes but next to his eyes we don't know any more than what he knows at any given time the movie doesn't have an eye of god perspective that most movies do where the camera always knows where to be at any given moment it's always just kind of lagging behind clive owen Without putting too fine a point on it, visually, I think the movie communicates the idea that, you know, it's constantly moving forward without knowing what's happening. You know, most movies with that eye of God perspective, there's a sense of fate. But this one is just constantly moving forward into an uncertain future. Even if, as we said before, the future is prescribed in a lot of ways, the visual style is a counterpoint to that.
1: So Theo and Key end up at this compound. Julian, played by Julianne Moore, is a victim of this fatal shooting uh, during the chase. One of their associates, whose name is Luke, actually, uh Kills two policemen who uh, pull up As they're driving away from the scene They bury Julian at the safe house uh, And this is where Theo learns that Key is pregnant. Should have added earlier Just a small detail I forgot to recount Is that uh, Theo is some kind of Government bureaucrat so he's able to arrange Key uh, transit papers Or something by leaning on some contacts In the in the bureaucracy or something Like that so that's why he's been enlisted uh, Also because Julian Knows him from activist days But so during this night uh, spent In the compound, Theo overhears a conversation that uh, some of these would be dissidents are having. And it's not exactly clear uh, what the plan is, but one thing we do learn is that uh, two of them uh, orchestrated Julian's death so that Luke could rise to the top of the rebel hierarchy. And it seems like, you know, they may plan to kill Theo and they want to use the baby as some sort of political tool a when people see we have a baby, everyone will join us in the uprising! But we can forget about the baby if the girl even suspects we killed Julia. What was I supposed to do?! You saw how he is. He's on death fucking door! It's protocol and fucking cousin! So this is enough for Theo to uh, wake Key and Miriam, who's this former midwife, who I guess were to imagine has been unemployed for the past eighteen years, but is very useful to this cause for obvious reasons. And he explains to them like we we have to go now. Like I'll get you to the rendezvous point. We can't trust these people. And again, there's this absolutely harrowing scene with more of these long takes with this you know this single camera where uh, they can't get the car started, and Theo ends up getting out and pushing. And so there's this chase scene where mostly the engine of the car won't start at all and maybe this is a bit of a hack point but i'm gonna make it anyway i mean this scene is so much more suspenseful and has so much more tension in it than so many like guns blazing chase scenes where everything is going really fast and everything is green screened you know when this podcast gets to season 15 and i'm still saying a version of that then you can call me cantankerous but i'm gonna keep making that point for now So anyway, Theo can only think of one place uh, that they can hide now that the dissident safe house is no longer an option. And uh, he takes Key and Miriam to the home of Jasper Palmer, who's the character played by Michael Caine, who, as I said, lives with his dog and uh, wife, who's a former activist, apparently tortured to the point of being catatonic by the British government because uh, she's presumably been an activist of some kind. And Jasper uh, refuses to come with them the next day uh, when they set out to leave in one of many scenes scenes in the film that I found very difficult to watch. Theo, I think, inadvisably, like, stops the car and watches from the bushes as Jasper provides a diversion. Well, you know, the the British Gestapo show up, and eventually they kill him. It's a viscerally upsetting scene to watch. Now, the complication in their plan to get Key out of the country is that they have to do it through one of these coastal refugee camps, and a contact of Jasper's uh, named Sid helps them get into the camp. It's at this point that Key begins to experience contractions, and once They've gotten into the facility. Miriam, by the way, having been abducted by police and, you know, they put a bag over her head and, you know, drag her off the bus. We never find out what happens to her after that. Just another uh, absolutely horrifying scene. Miriam sacrifices herself basically by, I guess, pretending to be a religious zealot because she doesn't want the guards to uh, see that Key is pregnant. So Key gives birth inside the camp. Uh, they meet a Romani woman whose name is Marichka. She gives them a room. This is where Key gives birth. Sid comes in the next day to tell them that uh, there's been a bombing during the night. There's basically uh, open warfare now between, you know, some kind of uprising the dissident faction is carrying out. And uh, the government forces, he says, they're going to bomb this place. You know, you have to you have to let me uh, help you get out of here. Sid, of course, uh, learns that there's a baby in the room. He eventually has a problem. Uh, Theo has to deal with it. A breeze block and uh, Sid's head are involved and make rather forceful contact with one another. There is then a sequence which uh, is, I mean, probably, well, easily the most disturbing in the film. I mean, some of the most incredible and harrowing war footage I think I've ever seen in a movie. And again, there's a long take which... I think la- I mean, it must last for three and a half or four minutes. It's in and out of buildings. There's so many things happening. There are security forces just executing people. There are gunfights and mortar barrages happening between the dissidents and the army and police. And yeah, in
0: the context of the current moment where we're seeing so much awful footage from the, from the Middle East on our phones every day, I did find this scene quite a bit more disturbing, like a lot more disturbing than I did in 2006.
1: But so eventually uh, the fighting stops when the soldiers who've invaded this building see that Key is carrying a baby and they actually just let her and Theo walk out of there. They are able to escape and make it to the rendezvous point. And here we learn that Marichka, who has disappeared, or, you know, uh, shes we see her going into shelter. Theo puts her into shelter as they're a few scenes earlier as they're running through these gunfights. I just assumed we'd never see her again. Uh, in fact, we do. She helps them into a boat. And like uh, Miriam and Jasper and Julie, and other characters in this film, Marichka does something completely selfless and stays behind apparently because she doesn't want, uh, even though Theo's offering to bring her, doesn't want to, you know, slow them down by taking up too much room in this small rowboat In the final sequence of the film, as Theo and Key row through this heavy fog, having passed through this, uh, you know, hole in this kind of stone seawall that may even surround the whole of Britain, or perhaps it's just the southern portion of the refugee camp. I mean, it's a small visual detail, but I loved the way that the wall was imagined where it's this kind of stone seawall that's also covered in spikes. You know, if you walk along certain parts of the English coast, you you kind of do see things that are visually like that because you see remnants of the coastal defenses that were put in place circa 1940 in preparation for a possible Nazi invasion. So to see that, you know, with the addition of these kind of horrifying barbed wire, you'd see it like a, you know, U.S.-Mexico border, like an ice facility or something. I thought a wonderful, uh, albeit sinister, little visual detail. So as Theo and Key roll out to the rendezvous point in the fall, They see some jets fly over and uh, apparently launch airstrikes on the refugee camp. As Theo is possibly dying, uh, certainly he's badly wounded. His fate at the end of the movie is not entirely clear. Key tells him that she's going to name her baby girl Dylan, which was the name, as we've learned earlier in the film, of Theo and uh, Julian's lost son who's died for unknown reasons. And then in the last shot of the film, we see a vessel called Tomorrow, this dissident vessel associated with the partly mythical, though apparently real, human project. The screen fades to black, and then we hear the sound of laughing children.
0: Now, crucially, this scene offers only a very small flicker of hope. It just offers one life in the midst of all this dystopia. The movie's not prescriptive in any way, nor is it predictive,
1: that's right. I mean, we have no idea, you know, what's go- is Theo going to live? What's going to happen to Key and Dylan? Why has Key been able to give birth uh, when, you know, for 18 years no one else has been able to? What even is the human project? What are their objectives really and wh- what means do they have to carry them out? We don't know any of that. But I think in spite of all that, what the film is saying is that hope still exists. A future still exists as long as one can be imagined and hoped for. I think that's a very powerful message and it's certainly one that's richly supported by the impeccably directed and shot uh, thriller that surrounds it.